Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 348 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back and it is Thursday so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened over the last week in the worlds of AEW and NXT, and wouldn't you know it, we have an absolute ton to talk about on today's show. So much for both AEW and NXT this week, the Silver King is not wasting any time getting into today's program. So allow me to remind you off the top, as always, of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So please be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop us that five-star rating on Apple. Take an extra 30 seconds. Also write a review with that five-star rating. Let everyone know why you listen to the show and why they should as well. The reviews help us so much. And every time we get a new five-star review, we read it right here live on the podcast. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You get live shows around pay-per-views and premium live events on Twitter spaces. But we also tweet about wrestling all week long, whether it's news or our thoughts on the shows live as we watch them. We post polls. We get involved. We take your DMs and tweets. We use them as comments and questions for the show. This week, not too many of those, unfortunately. Some weeks, you guys flood us, as you did last week. Uh, But this week, not that much. So unfortunately, uh, the Silver King's running completely solo today. But nevertheless, if you have questions, if you have comments, questions are easier to read than comments on the show. Go ahead, tweet us, DM us, at Getting Overcast, and we will get them on here. As I said, a ton to discuss on today's show from both AEW and NXT, and we are going to get into that right now. Just a quick reminder that every episode of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast has timestamps in our episode description. So if you are listening to the show and I start off with a brand that you're not as interested in hearing, all you need to do is hit the episode description, find the timestamp for what you want, and you can go ahead and jump to it. But as I say, on every episode of the show, but especially our Thursday episodes, I really do hope that you guys are listening to everything from start to finish. Now, most weeks here on the Thursday shows, we usually begin with AEW. This week is going to be a little bit different. We're going to kick things off with NXT. Why are we doing that? A couple reasons. One, NXT had a especially noteworthy show on Tuesday. But secondly, we're going to give you a mini edition of an AEW uh, Grand Slam Ultimate Preview that we're going to do at the end of the show. So we're going to start with NXT. We're going to go over to AEW next week. Chances are things will be flip-flopped. But nevertheless, you're going to hear a full breakdown of both brands coming up right now. As I said, we are kicking off with NXT, and this show was the one-year anniversary of the 2.0 rebrand, which really, when you think about that, time flies. (laughs) The fact that uh, a year ago at this time, we were wondering what it meant, talking about the colors and the name and the logo, the aesthetics of how they changed the performance center, so on and so forth, the, the influx of new talent, how terrible, truly terrible, those first two episodes of 2.0 were. And recently, over the last four to six weeks, what have we been talking about? Man, the show is kind of hitting its stride. Holy shit, the ratings are up. Like, people are starting to watch this. And I think sentiment surrounding NXT and that rebrand have really turned over the last couple of months, but especially over the last four to six weeks. Now, what we got on Tuesday was a great episode of Wrestling TV from start to finish. And there is a lot to unpack coming out of this show. Let's start with the way the show started. There was a seriously great anniversary video package that highlighted all the major moments from NXT over the first year of 2.0. And it actually did hit every single major development and a lot of the best moments. But I gotta say, I laughed my ass off because there's all this great wrestling and these new characters that they're showing. And then they include a clip of that horrific... Ali J rap performance. That was easily the worst thing on the show and very possibly the worst thing in all of wrestling television over the last calendar year from this moment uh, to that moment. It was such a piece of shit. But besides that, the rest of the video package was really well done. But as interesting as that video package was, was perhaps 
Even more notable was the video package we got to close NXT following the main event. It was narrated by Shawn Michaels, and he basically said, NXT will always be about developing future superstars, but NXT also always acknowledges the past. And it ended with a reveal of a new black, gold, and white logo, mostly gold and white, with the 2.0 being removed from it. So basically, it keeps the current font, but remixes the style, melding the old with the new. It's almost like black and gold was Triple H, the rainbow was Vince McMahon, and now the white and gold is Shawn Michaels, which is really apropos when you consider some of his gear that he's worn, especially uh, when he pretended to be God for that period of time. Uh, Really well done. I shouldn't say pretending to be God, when he represented God in that feud uh, with Vince McMahon. The white and gold aesthetic, very much a Shawn Michaels thing. Uh, But not only is this new logo far more eye-catching than the 2.0 logo with the absurd color scheme, it really does seem like a great way to mesh together the original and the new brand, especially now that there's a big NXT UK presence in NXT in the United States. And this is what we talked about for much of the last year as we were evaluating the transition to 2.0, what we liked, what we didn't initially, how it had grown on us as the year went on, and of course, what it has been in terms of a quality and objective review of the positives and negatives of it over the last couple of months. So again, this is what we talked about. NXT, the black and gold maybe not really working because it did go away from the original intention. 2.0 having a number of positive and necessary changes, but perhaps also a couple of elements that just didn't really speak to the audience they were trying to hit and maybe weren't hitting. For example, the heavy emphasis on sexuality for a long period of time. But don't forget, At the base level, when the Silver King talks about NXT, you do need to remember that I come from a place where black and gold NXT, especially what we got for the vast majority of its existence, was my favorite wrestling brand, perhaps of all time. And a lot of those elements have been missing from the new product. I mean, we've literally discussed this at length on this show on numerous occasions. And look at this, Triple H is back. And that now seems to be what we're getting the meshing of the old black and gold, the elements that we really liked and perhaps have been missing with the best parts of NXT 2.0, the development and featuring of young talent, the usage of veterans to help that process along, the screen time, the extended focus on women's wrestling. Yes, some of the matches may be short, But look at the number of women that get on TV over a two-hour span for NXT compared to three hours, let's say, in a week of AEW. So what I believe is, yes, this so far, all we know is that there's a new logo and perhaps they're getting rid of 2.0, it seems like they are, in terms of, you know, changing the name of the show. But this is a symbol of perhaps what can happen in the future for this NXT brand. The 2.0 branding on its own, we need to say. It was so freaking dated. I know they wanted to differentiate the show, but it was such a retro way to do it. Just like when the turn of the century, everything was called 2000, right? At some point uh, when when software and, and the internet became more of a part of regular society in the late 90s and early 2000s, everything was 2.0 this, 3.0 that. And this, I mean, that was, don't forget, 20 years ago where this was kind of popular nomenclature to use 2.0, yet they kind of jammed it into the name of a TV show here. So getting rid of 2.0, great. Changing the logo, I know some of you really liked the rainbow aspect, the multicolors. I'm not saying it was the worst thing, but it went so starkly in a different direction, right? Whereas black and gold was dark with the skulls and the heavy metal aesthetic, especially towards the end, some of the stuff Triple H did. The NXT 2.0 logo and aesthetic was totally all the way like Care Bear, like in the other complete direction. It seems like by going white and gold instead of either of the others, you're keeping the brightness and the liveliness and the youth without making it look in some ways a little bit ridiculous with the splash of color. That to me as a viewer, just being candid, it hurt my eyes many times to watch, especially in the early days of NXT 2.0, where everything was colorful. I still, to this day, don't understand why they've been bl- using blue ropes. Like that, that just hasn't made any sense to me whatsoever. So 
by doing this, by changing the logo, altering the name, it just seems like they're really trying to find the middle point between black and gold and 2.0. As long as NXT doesn't go too far back in the old direction, which I doubt it will, given the roster as it's assembled, given all of the people that perhaps would have been hired by Triple H are full-time members or at least part-time members of the AEW roster. They don't really have the opportunity to go back 100% in the old direction. Because of that, I believe this is going to be a hugely positive change. It also explains why NXT taped, I think, next week's episode. I saw some people saying two weeks. I believe it's just next week's episode, but on Wednesday this week, because I presume what they're going to do is spend the better part of the next two weeks remodeling the Performance Center and refreshing the look. I was asked by one listener, hey, do you think they're going to go back to Full Sail? And NXT does still have a relationship with Full Sail, especially the students. A lot of them are used to help with the production of NXT, but I don't necessarily know if they're going to go back there. What I've been very curious about, and I've really never gotten an answer to, is so when I visited the Performance Center uh, twice before the pandemic, in this same space where there is one ring and all the fans and the stage and all that, there were like six rings, there were crash pads. It was a wild amount of training that was happening all at once. I don't know where that happens now. And I don't know if it happens now. I presume it does, that they're still training and developing talent because the roster, both on TV and off TV, is still large. But like, did NXT rent out another warehouse and they just threw all the rings in there? Is it nearby the Performance Center? Is it attached to the Performance Center? I don't exactly know. So if they do need to bring that back, then yeah, perhaps they're going to move the set over back to full sale. But I think from a cost perspective, it made a lot of sense for WWE considering they either owned or have a long-term lease on this building to just set up production here. They know it can work. They know the number of fans hasn't overly affected ratings uh, too much. Like it hasn't turned people off for there to be fewer fans in this smaller venue. It's more intimate. So perhaps WWE says, hey, you know what? We cut costs by doing this, but let's increase costs by amping up the set and the way it looks from a production standpoint. So, you know, I don't know if they're just remodeling in the PC or if they're perhaps moving back to full sale. We're going to find out certainly sooner than later. I'm sure if they were going to full sale, that would probably leak by someone uh, like a PW Insider that has really good sources with NXT. But as of right now, um, my expectation is they're going to remodel the Performance Center. That is why they're taking two weeks off. And when we come back, we're going to see something fresh and new. What's it going to look like? I don't exactly have those answers, obviously. Will I try to find out? You bet I will. But even changing the set and design, making some tweaks, it's also a needed change just because what they were currently doing was way too bright. Again, as long as it doesn't shift all the way back to the dark aesthetic, then we're probably going to be okay. It needs to be a mix of the two. A little bit more serious, but still somewhat bright and eye-catching and inviting to the viewer, not hey, you're entering a dungeon to watch some professional wrestling, which is what at the end NXT black and gold had been, especially with the black and the wings and the um, the skulls and, and everything that they started to do. I, I did see one other person send me a DM. Hey, do you want them to bring back the black um, canvas to the, to the ring? I loved it. I really did love it when it was black. I don't know if with the white and gold logo and what aesthetic choices they're going to make, if it does make sense to bring it back. But if they did, I'm all for it. I loved the way that differentiated NXT. But going back to the gold, the different color scheme, it is going to help separate it out. Now, as I said on Tuesday show, when we did talk about SmackDown ratings, which I try not to do, uh, I do want to talk about ratings here for NXT as well, because it is worth pointing out that Tuesday show did the highest viewership since last year's Halloween Havoc special. And the last five weeks of NXT have been a big improvement ratings-wise compared to what it had been doing on a regular basis. So with the taped episode coming up and then the rebranding, WWE needs to make sure that whatever goodwill it's engendered and whatever momentum it has created with NXT previously 2.0, They need to make sure they don't lose that momentum because if they're able to maintain it and bring some of those old elements back, perhaps that brings another 50,000, 100,000 fans back. All of a sudden, you're talking about 
high 700,000s, low 800,000s, you're getting back into the, you know, 0.25 area instead of the 0.14 area from a demo standpoint. And now this is suddenly a viable developmental slash third brand product. And if they can get to that, suddenly everything is going to be more exciting, especially given some of the developments that actually happened on NXT Tuesday and how that can feature in and factor into the main roster, which is what we're going to talk about right now. So on this NXT 2.0 one year anniversary episode, there were a couple of elements of which fans were able to vote that were calculated into the way the show went down. One of those was going to be the challenger for Carmelo Hayes, who was defending his North American championship on the show. Wes Lee ended up being the winner of that fan vote, and it was really a total no-brainer given the other people up for it were Von Wagner and Joe Gacy. I mean, I think people still hate Von Wagner and Joe Gacy. I mean, again, both as a person, I'm sure he's a very nice person, and as a wrestler who can do another gimmick, I'm sure he could be very successful. But his current gimmick, obviously, I hate as well. And I have to believe a number of fans probably agree with me. I'm not saying that everything I say is, you know, the universal truth on, uh, on you know, people's takes on WWE, NXT, or AEW. But I have to believe the Joe Gacy stuff is not rubbing the majority of people the right way. Anyway, there was no way that anyone other than Wesley was winning, and ultimately, he did win. Later, before the match began... Trick Williams distracted Wesley in the locker room so Mello could attack him and literally slam his head into a locker door twice. Mello went out, he talked his talk as he walked to the ring, and then inside the ring, he did Wesley, or he said he did Wesley a favor by taking him out, he talked more shit before it basically looked like there wasn't going to be a match. At least that's what they wanted the fans to think. Suddenly, out of absolutely nowhere, Solo Sokoa's music hit and he made an entrance. Sokoa grabbed the mic, he reminded that he got next, and then he took out both guys as the crowd chanted Oos at him. Mello jumped back inside, and the bell rang. Solo threw Mello out of the ring into Trick. Later, Trick took out Sokoa's injured knee behind the referee's back so Mello could work on it. Solo hit a super kick, a Samoan drop, and a hip attack, but Trick saved Mello, who hit a codebreaker coming back. Sokoa then hit a pop-up Samoan drop for a near fall. Trick distracted again and ate a super kick. Sokoa then caught Mello flying at him. With a Uranagi, he nailed the Uso splash and got the 1-2-3 to win the North American Championship in 10 minutes. The crowd went bonkers for the title change. Immediately after the bell, commentary asked if the title was going to SmackDown, which alluded to him already appearing on the main roster and seemingly having been called up. And then as he raised the title in one hand, he raised the one symbol for the bloodline in the other as the show came to an end. I gotta say, I give NXT and WWE their due, but this right here was freaking brilliant on so many different levels. First, the fact that at a minimum, Solo's six-month story was going to wrap up with the title match that he earned and deserved, win or lose. And then the fact that they went ahead with the title change. We have said numerous times here that Sokoa should have been the one to dethrone Mello. Yet with the injury and then the call-up, and I don't even know whether that injury was ever real, but with the injury and the call-up, it seemed like that was no longer possible. Not only did he get the match, he got the title as he should have. It also protected Mello because he was clearly not prepared for any match given he took out Wes Lee, let alone a brawl, with someone like Sokoa. So now Mello has an excuse that he can ride. And then you consider the bloodline factor. Given Solo wasn't about to beat Gunther for the Intercontinental title, this was a genius way to strap him up for the aesthetic of the entire faction holding gold. And I say that, obviously the honorary who is Sami Zayn does not have any gold. But guess what? Since they're doing a comedy angle with Sami, They could just go ahead and give him the 24-7 title for shits and giggles if they really wanted to. Not necessary, but still a possibility. But going back to this, and then you get, after all of that, to the continuity. Now, there's a direct connection now between the A show with the A stable featuring the top star in the entire industry and WWE's developmental third brand. Assuming he's not moving the title to the main roster, which I highly doubt they would take the North American title out of NXT, This is a tremendous 
crossover opportunity to boost NXT interest and potentially the ratings also. Not to mention the strap is finally off Mello, who now has a few options. He can go after Braun Breaker, which we have been waiting to see. What have we been talking about? Mello as the heir apparent to Braun. You take the title off Braun, you move him up. Mello's your new champion. He can roll with it for a year. But Mello also tweeted out a photo of him holding up a peace sign, perhaps indicating he's not even going to go after the NXT title. He might just get called up. So it's going to be really curious to see what goes down. But this was a win, 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 win. For what I can say here, one of the best WWE booking decisions of the entire year, if it shakes out the way we expect. Everyone benefits, including the fans, especially those who already watch NXT and got to enjoy the continuity of the entire thing. This was just a brilliant decision from top to bottom. I love that they made it. And I love that it was a surprise that it completely caught me off guard. I am the game, JR. There is nobody that eats, sleeps, or breathes this business more than me. I'm probably going to need to get a Shawn Michaels sound effect as well, but Triple H, Shawn Michaels, fantastic job with this. Now, the other fan-voted stipulation or contribution, I guess, on NXT was the Tag Team Championship match, the new champions, Pretty Deadly, facing the Creed Brothers. Fans voted for a steel cage match, and I didn't even see what the other options were, but thank you, because I was very glad this match happened inside a steel cage. The champions tried escaping every possible way at the bell, with the Creeds making a, real, a bunch of really cool saves. Kit Wilson hit a jumping codebreaker on Julius off his partner's back. Brutus powerbombed Elton Prince into the cage. Then Julius did like, like a springboard Spanish fly with Prince on his side, but he landed on his feet. I'm pretty sure Sammy Guevara has done something like that before, and I think Ray Phoenix has done something like that also. The fact that Julius can do the same thing, crazy. Uh, Julius then took a mega superplex from the top of the cage to more muted holy shit chants, which were ridiculous. Julius then got a guy on each shoulder for an assisted double Brutus bomb into all three guys. Suddenly, Damon Kemp climbed to the top of the cage. Julius tried to stop him, but he got handcuffed to the top of the cage while he was standing on the top rope. Brutus beasted Pretty Deadly one on two. Then he tried helping his brother. Pretty Deadly went for the open door. So Brutus flew off the top rope into both of them. There was a really big hope spot with an ankle lock. But Deadly eventually hit Spilt Milk, only for Brutus to kick out of the false finish. Deadly then battered Brutus into all parts of the cage and hit Spilled Milk for a second time to get the win and retain the titles. This was an outstanding match, like a total freaking banger. You knew there would be Kemp interference to cost them the titles, but it was smartly done. Brutus was kept strong by fighting so long one-on-two. Julius was obviously kept strong because he was stuck and there was nothing he could do about it. Just really, really well booked from you know start to finish. A tornado tag steel cage match. It's usually dope. This lived up to expectations with two really strong teams. I went four stars and an A minus for it, even without the clean finish. Uh, Fallon Henley fought Lash Legend. Henley hit a tilt a roll bulldog and a heel kick for the one, two, three in two minutes. This was a total and utter shock to me. But there was a sick kid with Briggs and Jensen that I didn't notice before the match. So I assume they had the faces win for that reason. Still, Two minutes over Lash Legend was a really big surprise, given she has been pushed far stronger than Henley, despite her inexperience over the last couple of months. But this being a two-minute match, it was just absurd. Five should be the minimum, unless there is a storyline reason for it to be shorter. They barely got to put in any work. And while Legend did look like she improved, it was almost impossible to tell. Why? Because she got 120 seconds of in-ring work. Uh, Now, the three faces were all celebrating backstage when they came across Toxic Attraction, Jensen said he loved Mandy Rose's Instagram post and her titles uh, were amazing. Mandy was offended and then Fallon got into it with them. So it looks like she'll step up maybe as the next challenger. But after one random two minute singles title win, I don't know. It's just disappointing that they cannot book this division well. So Toxic Attraction hit the ring with Mandy gloating over her success that she took out the top two women in NXT UK history and will run NXT Europe also if she so chooses. The team said that they elevated the tag titles and they sit on a level above everyone else. Mandy put over their run and said that she's already passed Braun Breaker and Carmelo Hayes as champions. This, of course, was before the latter match at the end of the show. Uh, That brought out Alba Fire to say a bunch of nothing, but she did threaten Rose. She hit Toxic Attraction with her bat and then took out Mandy with the gory bomb. This was actually the best three-person promo 
that Toxic Attraction has ever done. All three of them nailed their parts. And you could see that there is a clear confidence and development on the mic, especially from JC Jane and Gigi Dolan. Mandy, we thought that was the case, but every other week she still struggles on the mic. But all three of them together here, really good. If Alba is the next challenger and not Fallon Henley, well, this is something I've been talking about since her name change, right? This is the move to take the title off Mandy. At least it should be the move to take the title off Mandy. Toxic is ready for the main roster. They're as ready as they're ever going to be. And Alba is the best wrestler remaining on the brand. Just get this done and allow us to move forward with everything else. Cora Jade in a video package explained how her confidence shot up in the feud with Natalia and said it only grew with Roxanne Perez joining the roster, which is why she dropped the dead weight. Then she tore down the entire women's roster except Toxic, saying she still doesn't like them, but now she at least understands them. She promised to be the top woman in the industry by the two-year anniversary of NXT 2.0. Sorry, I'm afraid I've got some bad news for you on that, Cora Jade. Nevertheless, it'll still be her second year in NXT. Uh, Wendy Chu responded to Jade's trash talk when Legend interrupted her, and Chu shot back with them getting into it. This was all extremely well done. It set up numerous potential feuds for Jade and also a more immediate one with Chu and Legend. Uh, Chu obviously coming off the win against Tiffany Stratton, Legend coming off that really weird loss that we just talked about. We have Fallon Henley and Alba Fire going after Mandy Rose. Just a lot of stuff with the women's division, a lot of people being featured. So yeah, the the individual booking, right, earlier, like I said, of Fallon Henley didn't like that and potentially giving her a title match after a two-minute squash doesn't make sense. But the rest of this, all very good, all developing the entire division and creating storylines outside of the title picture, which is something the main roster and AEW both failed to do. At least they failed to do it consistently. Uh, JD McDonough cut a promo while getting a straight razor shave. He said personal grooming and hygiene is a necessity for him. The barber cut him and Gate and uh, I almost called him Gacy. McDonough stared at the blood on his hand while saying he would deal with Braun Breaker again soon. Another week, another total miss for JD. I think the last time I saw someone blade purposely while doing a promo was like ECW. Like, I don't know when the last time that happened. Uh, Vic Joseph sat down for a taped interview with Braun Breaker to go over the first year of his career. They went over every major moment. And it kind of reminded me like how ridiculously strong this guy has been booked and how a lot of it was really unnecessary. There's nothing wrong with this necessarily, but it didn't accomplish anything. Braun remains extremely bland as a character. All of his charisma is in the ring. If it's not between the ropes after a bell has rung, he's just a saltine. He needs a topping. He needs to be dipped into something. It just, it's not working out right now. Uh, Tyler Bate was backstage saying he respects Breaker, but he wants a rematch for the title. He admitted that McDonough stands in his way, and he said he's willing to face him first for the opportunity. Now that's going to be a banger number one contendership match. I'm assuming we're getting that next week. I do think we all know JD's probably going to win, which makes it a little bit less interesting. And it also makes it frustrating that you may have Tyler Bate here taking consecutive losses after going through that big winning streak to go ahead and win the NXT UK title. But it was a good promo from Bate, credit where it's due. Uh, Nikita Lyons and Zoe Stark fought Kiana James and Ariana Grace. Stark hit Grace with a flipping go-to-sleep, now called the Z360. It's a good name for a finisher. And Lyons tagged in for a rough roundhouse kick and split cover for the win in nine minutes. Not a bad match, but clearly, through my description, nothing that special either. Uh, Stark was so much more talented in the ring here than the other three women. The difference was Stark, pun intended. Uh, commentary made it sound like Lions and Stark were finally teaming together after a long break, except they were never a team. They were announced as a team for the WWE tournament, but they never actually wrestled together. I still don't get the pairing at all. They don't mesh well. Nikita remains sloppy as hell in the ring. I know WWE and NXT are pushing Lions strong and they're probably going to wind up rushing her to the main roster. And I get, as I've said before, why a certain segment of fans like her. But I just don't. It's like she's Nia Jax, but greener, yet somehow still safer because Nia Jax wasn't safe at all. There's just nothing there to her where I say this is a future women's champion. It just seems like a cog in the wheel who's larger, who's sloppy, and just isn't as good as a lot of the other women, even on the NXT roster, let alone the main roster, should she go up there. So, you know, look, maybe that's... uh, Maybe I'm going to get criticized for the Nikita Lions hate, but 
Just being candid with what I see. Uh, Grayson Waller was backstage. He was really excited to hear the top four wrestlers named as finalists for NXT Star of the Year until he learned that they were Toxic Attraction, which is a whole group, so I don't really get that. Uh, Mello, Nikita Lyons, also don't get that, and Breaker. That obviously sent Waller into a tailspin of anger. He said it should have been him and that people are scared of him. Braun ended up winning the award, but I can't imagine that was the legitimate vote. I have to believe Mello would have won from a fan vote, but if it wasn't Mello, Braun, I guess, yeah, totally makes sense and is acceptable. We had Tony D'Angelo and Stax against Cameron Grimes and an opponent to be named. Grimes backstage said his partner was the only person he could count on himself. Gacy, Joe Gacy, predictably came down two minutes later to be Grimes' partner. When Grimes realized that he was on the ropes, he refused to tag. Gacy eventually tagged himself in. They argued and Grimes hit the Spanish crossbody plus the cave-in on D'Angelo as Gacy hit his finisher on Stax for the win. Gacy hugged Grimes from behind after the bell. He allowed it for five seconds before pushing him off and screaming. Gacy then went for a hug, but Grimes refused. So the dyad attacked and hit Ticket to Mayhem or whatever it's called now uh, before Gacy hit the handspring lariat to end it. Wrestling storyline as old as time, but it's working best it can with a group that's this terrible, schism. My most positive takeaway is I'm glad they didn't drag this out with Grimes considering joining them or pretending to join them for weeks and blah, blah, blah. At least they skipped forward, fast forwarded to the final part before the eventual one-on-one match. I'm sure they'll do that at Halloween Havoc. Maybe they'll do it earlier. This was probably the best of all of their interactions to date, but again, that's really not saying much. Grimes should already be on the main roster. He should be done with all of this shit. But if you're going to keep him in NXT, put him in title feuds, allow him to do something that matters, not this. Later in the parking lot, the person in the red hoodie was trying to convince Malik Blade and Idris Anofe to vote for Gacy in the year-end poll. They refused, and the dyad attacked to set up a feud with the tag team. Then the big man security guard came out to break stuff up, but all his partners, the rest of the security, pushed him away. They're like, hey man, you got a match. You need to focus on that. The red hoodie person, I did notice, had a long black fingernail, which makes me think it might be a woman. And maybe Isla Dawn from NXT UK would be someone who would make sense as part of this group, which if she does join, would become a faction or a stable. I guess we'll find out, but that's the first thing I thought of. Uh, Javier Bernal fought Hank Walker, who was the name of the security guard. Apparently, other people already knew his name because there was a Hank 316 sign and a chant for him in the crowd. He came out in a work shirt and jeans without an entrance theme. During the match, for the first time ever, commentary closed the kayfabe plot hole that has existed for the entirety of NXT. Wade Barrett explained, sometimes NXT prospects, people in the performance center, are used as security until they're ready to actually be wrestlers. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. Now it explains, guess what? Why Braun Breaker was a security guard. Why other people we've seen in the past as security guards. Just by closing that loop and closing that plot hole, now it makes the security guard turned wrestler a reality. And it's not just with Hank Walker, it's with everyone that preceded him and a ton of people that will succeed him as well. Walker hit a Fez press. He pulled off his shirt to a huge but funny pop. He had a major farmer's tan. He hit uh, two corner splashes plus a running crossbody for the win in three minutes and 30 seconds to applause and a very loud Hank chant from the crowd. It's easy to appreciate this for what it was, just a really fun low card match. The crowd made the entire thing, but did either of them really show anything in the match? Again, we always look at this stuff from a developmental perspective as well. Not really, nothing that was done was that great, but the moment, the moment was fun. Uh, Quincy Elliott fought Sean Gallagher. Quincy's entrance came with him spinning on a director's chair, but I thought he was supposed to come down in a scooter. Like the whole gimmick is nothing's cuter than a boy with your scooter. And I think on level up, he came down with a scooter. So that was surprising. Uh, He showed off some really good athleticism, but didn't do that much before winning with a bonsai drop. Then he twirled the referee like in a dance move after the bell. There's definitely something here with Quincy. It's almost like some combination of viscera and gold dust, but like a modern take, obviously, on both and probably less problematic in certain areas than Goldust was. At least with the gear and the look, that's what I couldn't help but think about. I'm interested to see where it goes. The crowd loves him already. He's super over, but I need to see a little bit more before we can actually evaluate whether this is going to work. Uh, Yulisa Leon told Valentina Feroz and Sangha that she has a torn ligament in her knee 
We'll keep her out of action for nine months. Sangha told Feroz it's now her time to shine. Mr. Stone and Von Wagner walked up, calling them all pathetic. Stone convinced Wagner to calm down. And I just thought, like, I don't care about Stone and, and Wagner or whatever, but this creative is pretty refreshing with Sangha, Leon, and Feroz. When is the last time that you have seen a big man be the manager and motivational guru for a women's tag team? It's just different, and different is cool. This is where you try things like this. And so far in NXT, it does seem to be working. A short video package aired for Aro Mansa, who will debut next week. This is Oliver Carter from NXT UK with a name change. Extremely talented guy. Really good ad for NXT. The name, it sucks, but what are you going to do? Uh, we also got a vignette, second vignette for Sol Rucka. I don't remember if it was the same one as last week, but she has been impressive on NXT Level Up with limited work. Tiffany Stratton vibes from her in terms of athleticism and potential. So as you can tell, a very newsworthy episode of NXT. A lot of interesting, fun, thought-provoking things that happened on the show from start to finish. I have been critical of NXT uh, over the last few weeks. Just I haven't really loved the storylines, especially as it pertains to the main event for the men and women. But here it just really seemed like, even though there were some issues there, everything else was moving in such a positive direction we had two really good wrestling matches on the show. A couple other things that you know push storylines forward. Top to bottom, a strong episode of NXT. Not only the one-year anniversary of NXT 2.0, seems like the final episode of NXT 2.0. I have no idea what the taped show is going to look like uh, in terms of an aesthetic, you know, colors, logo, any of that. I don't know what's going to happen in the near and long-term future with NXT, but as worried as I was about the prior rebranding from Black and Gold to 2.0 is as excited as I am about this new rebranding from 2.0 to White and Gold NXT. Very, very interested to see what goes down in the coming days, weeks, and months as it pertains to NXT. Let's now move to AEW and Dynamite on Wednesday in particular was basically a go-home show for Grand Slam, which is one week away, next Wednesday and Friday. Not only are they doing a two-night Grand Slam, which just bothers me that they do the two-night special episodes as it is, but they're actually adding an additional hour for Rampage. So we're gonna get four hours of AEW Grand Slam for better or worse. We're not gonna know until next week, uh, but that is what we're going to get. As I said, this Wednesday in particular was really the go-home episode, the development episode for Grand Slam. And it's tough to know you know, exactly what was planned for Grand Slam and what changes Tony Khan and AEW Creative had to make. Clearly, from a world title standpoint, that has been changed. Clearly, from a tag team championship standpoint, that has been changed. In terms of everything else, it is tough to know. But of course, we were going to break down everything that happened across Dynamite and Rampage this week leading into Grand Slam next week. So let's start top to bottom with the World Championship Tournament. We had a quarterfinal on Rampage and two semifinals on Dynamite. The quarterfinal was Darby Allen against Sammy Guevara. Darby took off Sammy's wedding band, which she was wearing while wrestling for some reason. Ty Mello distracted, trying to get it back. So Sammy had a lifted knee and put it back on. Sammy nearly fell on a double springboard cutter, but then missed a coffin drop. Anna Jay distracted so Ty could throw Darby's skateboard into the ring. Sammy low blow Darby and powerbombed him into it before hitting the GTH for the win. I'm not sure I've seen in AEW two extremely talented wrestlers put on a more disappointing match. I know Darby needed an excuse, but the booking and creative for this entire thing for me was a big yikes. I liked the other two matches we got, but I just did not like this quarterfinal match. On Dynamite, the first semifinal was Jon Moxley against Sammy. This opened the show. Mox dominated for a while until Sammy hit a double springboard cutter. Mox countered the GTH into a bulldog choke and hammer elbows. Then Sammy countered the lariat into a standing Spanish fly for a near fall. Mox tried an avalanche German suplex, but Sammy kind of just flipped out of it awkwardly. Anna distracted as Ty kicked Mox in the balls, uh, but he kicked out of a small package. Mox then avoided a senton bomb and countered the GTH into Death Rider for the win in about 15 minutes. I should also note, um, it's... Strange that Mox has totally changed his finisher, and I don't know exactly why. You had the Death Rider that he was doing in New Japan, which was very much like a heavily elevated spike pile driver. You had Paradigm Shift that he did in AEW, which was a little bit more aggressive version of Dirty Deeds that he used 
in WWE. Now he's using Death Rider as a name, but he's doing like a double underhook suplex instead of a spike DDT, which I suppose is safer, but DDTs are normally relatively safe move on their own. So I'm just a little bit confused about why he changed the finisher and why it is now this. Uh, The Bulldog Choke is by far his most effective move uh, because it's so dominant, right? And he's a powerful, strong, you know, violent guy. So Death Rider, again, name, great, new kind of version of the finisher, a little surprising. Anyway, obvious winner as it should have been. This match was much better than the Darby fight. Mox helped Sammy look really good throughout. The double female interference, it's already exceedingly tired and predictable. If they didn't do it against Darby, it would have been fine here, but doing it in both matches, again, just kind of an eye roll there. And then we got the other semifinal, Brian Danielson against Chris Jericho. This was the main event of Dynamite, as it should have been. Brian absolutely dominated early. Jericho came back with a really weak version of the hammer elbows. There was a great camera shot of Brian no-selling the elbows because he was so laser-focused on the AEW title, which was on a stand at ringside. This was very cool. One of AEW's best camera shots, maybe in its history. Brian ate a codebreaker, but basically no-sold it to come back with a psycho knee. They did the vertical suplex spot from over the ropes, from the apron outside with Brian landing and selling an injured ankle. Jericho pushed away the trainers, pulled off Brian's boot and attacked the ankle. He also did the classic figure four around the ring post and a shin breaker back inside the ring. Danielson tried to hop across the ring for a psycho knee, but Jericho obviously countered into the walls of Jericho. That transitioned into a single leg crab and eventually another figure four. Brian then deftly transitioned out of a figure four into a label lock and he locked it in twice with Jericho finally tapping for the submission. Daniel Garcia backstage nodded his head and gave a thumbs up. Moxon came down and went face-to-face with Brian as a small group of fans chanted BCC. Danielson extended his hand, Mox shook it, and that ended the go-home to Grand Slam. This was an excellent wrestling match. Far too often in wrestling, we see people sell a leg injury only to completely forget about it five minutes later. And they can either hit a running finisher or they can stand perfectly upright when hitting their finisher, or if they have to do a top rope move, they can easily climb to the top rope and jump off without it not hurting them, whatever the case. Danielson's ankle was so hurt in kayfabe that the only way he could have legitimately won the match without bullshit, like I just mentioned, was a mat-based fashion. And that's exactly what they did. Now, there was a long screwy part at the end of the match where they kept trying to execute a sequence that like, had to do with a figure four and Jericho getting uh, thrown headfirst into a turnbuckle, but they like did it three different times and they couldn't figure out which turnbuckle they wanted to use. That did take me out of the match for a bit. But other than that, this was superb, four stars and an A minus. I did see uh, some criticism and comments online that neither Danielson Jericho match lived up to expectations. And I actually think that's true. Neither of them was as good as I expected them to be. That said, both of them were still entertaining and both of them still used good ring psychology and good storytelling. And that is what can elevate match quality even when some of the work perhaps doesn't live up to your expectations. So as I said, four stars and A- minus for this match. Mox coming out at the end, I thought made total sense. I did think that there was at least a chance that he would kick out Brian's ankle because, hey, he's violent and it's wrestling and blah, blah, blah. But his promo last week was so heavily babyface that taking advantage of his partner here would have been the wrong move. Brian now has an ankle that he could theoretically use as an excuse should he lose next week, though I do maintain that he should win the title. More on that in a little bit. So also on Dynamite, MJF apparently was angry backstage. He stormed to the ring, angry at Mox because he has no fear. MJF said he's real and Mox is playing a character because he's still the same poor little boy who got bullied but now he can drown his sorrows in alcohol. He did credit Mox for getting sober, but he said MJF's mind is more dangerous than alcohol for Mox. MJF said threats also applied to Danielson and Jericho, though he did spend the entirety of the promo talking about Mox. MJF then announced his stable on retainer, led by his best friend, Stokely Hathaway, called The Firm. MJF left the ring as Stoke said he convinced MJF that he could create a stable on retainer that will go their separate ways when he's done with them. Stokes said he's not a promoter or a manager, but a friend with connections. And everything he's done since debuting has been a lie. He made Morrissey say, I love you. He said Lee Moriarty should go after the ROH pure title. The Gun Club should aim for the AEW tag team titles. And Ethan Page wants the All-Atlantic Championship. 
Page did get a really nice pop. Now there's a lot to unpack here, both MJF and the firm. Let's start with MJF. If his promo wasn't a red herring, it completely gave away the tournament winner. So that's potentially disappointing, especially coming off Jericho spoiling a match result last week. My hope is that the Mox promo was the start of a long-term storyline where Brian wins the title, MJF eventually beats him for it, all of this while Mox is on vacation, and then Mox returns as MJF's major challenger. That is how I would book it. And if it is booked that way, the promo makes sense to set up the eventual feud. If not, it gave away Mox as the champion, which just feels repetitive given he already served as an interim role. And I think we all know that MJF, whenever he cashes this chip in, whenever he uses it for a match, is not going to lose. Like the whole goal is for MJF to be champion. Other than that, I did think this was well executed. It was nowhere near the quality of his promo last week. But I did like how AEW promoted that he was upset and about to go off, went to commercial. That way everyone stuck around with the cliffhanger to come back and see MJF. And to start the show with Mox and MJF in back-to-back segments, that's a really good way to keep ratings high. So very, very smart from a pacing standpoint right there. Now regarding The Firm. Good name. But the purpose as it was explained is very strange. On one hand, Stokes said they only exist for MJF on retainer and would go their separate ways when he's done with them. But he also said he's not a manager. On the other hand, he literally explained how he is going to manage all of the careers of the people in the firm to reach specific goals. Yet in doing so, he didn't put any of them over or explain why they're great. He just said, here are their names and this is what they want. The vast majority of Stokes' promo was about getting himself over. Can you imagine if Paul Heyman came out and only spoke about himself or MVP during the Hurt Business only talked about why he was great and then, oh yeah, here are these other dudes. Here's Bobby Lashley, by the way, just so you know. And that's actually another problem. Who really gives a shit about any of these guys except for Paige? And when it comes to Paige, Ethan Page, why is he again in a group or faction where he's not allowed to speak when arguably the best thing about him is his ability on the mic. Can you imagine putting LA Knight with maximum male models and making him a model instead of the spokesman? This has now been done twice with Paige. First, for Dan freaking Lambert, and now for Stokely Hathaway. Stokely, you know, I love him on the mic, and you guys know I'm a fan of his, very much so, but Paige doesn't need him to speak for him. It does not make sense. I think the idea in general for MJF to have a stable but not be around it all the time so he can stand strong on his own, that is very smart. That was the problem with Hurt Business and Bobby Lashley. It reduced his perceived level of dominance because he always had help. But the wishy-washiness of them not being a long-term faction, yet still being one, it was completely convoluted. Just let them be Stokes' full-time faction who MJF uses when he needs backup. It's not that complicated. Also, I know each guy said we're friends, but AEW was again banking off of fans being smart to the MJF Stoke relationship prior to this in order for it to make sense. The explanation to get Stoke away from his old gimmick by saying everything that happened before was a lie. I was never a publicist, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I'm glad they referenced it, but it was probably best left unsaid because that is such an absurd explanation. I was just lying the entire time. It's probably a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. But if you're going to explain it, the explanation needs to be good. He should have just said, hey, I got into AEW. I used all these old positions I was in to learn the inner workings of the company. That way I could take advantage of the system for my own needs. That is far more believable and based in reality as opposed to, yeah, I was just lying for four months. I mean, what is that, right? This also fell extremely flat with the crowd. Other than Paige, No one gave a single shit about any of it. It was probably because Stoke tried to force so much explanation into one segment. Had when they come out last week, they explained part of it and then followed up with a deeper explanation this week, I think both would have been easier to digest. Instead, last week was weird, this week was weird, and you have Stoke just talking at a really high, fast-paced rate for 10 straight minutes in front of a crowd immediately after MJF had just done the exact same thing. That said, I do love when a stable comes out and has clear goals. And that was a welcome part of this entire thing, including MJF 
These people are going after four total titles and will presumably have each other's backs in the process of doing so. That ultimately is a positive thing. Uh, Later backstage, Luigi Primo, who has been a viral sensation recently in the IWC for his gimmick, which is literally a pizza maker who throws around raw dough in the ring while doing moves during his matches. And I've seen it. It's actually not just great, it's impressive that the guy's able to do it. Anyway, Primo was flipping some dough backstage when Paige super kicked his ass in one second, saying he's tired of funny and corny shit in wrestling. Then Danhausen popped up and Paige challenged him to a match on Rampage. So Paige, who's going after the All-Atlantic title, is starting with Luigi Primo and Dan Danhausen. Let's just keep that in perspective. Uh, this did get a nice short pop for me though, I will say. Primo, cash that check, buddy. You earned it. I did think though this was pretty transparent as like a way for Tony Khan to get back in the good graces of the IWC after them being so pissed about everything that happened with CM Punk coming out of All Out. So I did think it was transparent. At the same time, the guy got paid and good for him. We also had a tag team championship match on Dynamite, Swerve and Our Glory against the Lucha Bros. Pentagon hit Maiden Penta on Swerve with Keith Lee using Ray Phoenix as a torpedo to break the fall. Phoenix did a springboard Spanish fly with Swerve before Penta jumped off his back for a Canadian destroyer on Lee for a near fall. This, as I just explained it, was a tremendous, crazy ass spot. Swerve then almost immediately pushed Phoenix off the top rope as Lee hit the Big Bang catastrophe on Penta for the win in eight minutes. When I say this booking made no sense, I mean it made no sense. The tag team champions already had a title match scheduled next week for Grand Slam. The challengers were nowhere in the top five of the rankings, and they are already the trio's champions. Not just the trio's champions, the newly crowned trio's champions. So not only did AEW give them an unreasonable title match, they had these newly crowned trio's champions, which just took the titles because the real champions or the first champions had them vacated They had this brand new set of title holders lose for no reason to a tag team that looks like it's about to drop its own belts. There was an attempt to explain the booking with a video package before the match, and I appreciated the effort there. I want to make that very clear. But the only detail shared was they had momentum, so they were going after the titles. Like, okay, yeah, we had some exciting wrestling, and we had one really good spot, but what was the point of the entire thing? Why would you do this? Why would you take your brand new champions and have them lose, not just lose, but lose in eight minutes to another set of champions who it looks like is gonna lose the titles. Uh, The acclaim entered immediately after the bell. Max Caster cut his own music and just straight up ripped Swerve for nut-hugging celebrities. I loved that. I thought it was really smart to skip all the joking bullshit this time and just cut a really tough promo on the champions. This was a better build to the match than a rhyme would have been. And the crowd exploded for every single thing the acclaim did. Alex Marvez backstage tried to get comment from Death Triangle after the loss. Pac was angry, but he didn't say much before Orange Cassidy hit him with an orange punch out of nowhere from off screen before crouching over him and saying Pac wouldn't be a double champion for long. This was cool to see. And I like that Orange was aggressive for a change, especially after Pac disrespected him last week. But put all this together, consider what we just saw. We saw the new trio's champions lose clean. And then another part of it, the third part of that team, get knocked out all inside of a 10 minute span, made them look like total chumps. They just won your titles. Very, very bad. On Rampage, Madison Rain fought Serena Deeb. Deeb countered a front chancery into a front slam, worked Rain's knee and won with the serenity lock in four minutes. Nothing like using your segmented women's spot to let two veterans nowhere near the title picture wrestle for only four minutes. Absolutely, positively pathetic. That is one big pile of shit. On Dynamite, we had Tony Storm and Athena fight Britt Baker and Serena Deeb. The faces cut a promo about Baker taking out Storm's planned partner, Hikaru Shida. This is because Shida was booked for a match in Japan, only for AEW to book her in this match without checking. Credit for the explanation. I do appreciate them explaining the storyline of why it changed and who stepped into the spot. Athena's ring gear with the wings, it looked even weirder than last week. Storm did a really cool combination through the ropes, dropkick on Rebel and Tornado DDT on Baker outside. Athena then got thrown into the stairs outside. Rebel distracted the referee. Baker grabbed a chair and held it between the ropes so Deeb could run Storm into the chair for the 1-2-3 on the champion in nine minutes. 
Athena attacked after the bell, but all it took was a super kick from Baker to leave her prone for a stomp. Baker was then about to beat both faces with a chair when Jamie Hayter ran down, presumably to save them. Instead, she took the chair and beat both of the baby faces with the chair, screamed at Baker, and then Britt screamed back at her that she was sorry and that Jamie didn't understand what happened at all out. So let me get this straight. The newly crowned champion not only lost a match, but was the one to take a fall in a tag team match. And the referee didn't realize that Baker was standing in the wrong corner when the entire thing happened. And then Hater runs down, angry at Baker, only to take out her anger on the people Britt wanted to take out. Now, the last part, it's at least intriguing. I presume the idea is Hater didn't want to let Baker get the glory of beating them down, so she took that opportunity from her. But it was nevertheless odd, given she didn't get a mic. The other two developments are completely mind-numbing. And by the way, when I say she didn't get a mic, Alex Marvez and all these people are backstage catching up with people. Why would you not run down Jamie Hayter and say, hey, Jamie, what was that about? Tell me why you did that. That was one of the most interesting things on the entire show. They didn't even follow up with it. Anyway, um, that was at least somewhat interesting. The other two developments, totally mind-numbing. Why were they mind-numbing? Well, because AEW announced a fatal four-way match for the women's title at Grand Slam with the same four women that were in this match. If they wanted to do a one-on-one match with Deeb challenging Storm after cheating and pinning her in this title match, cool. At least that would have made sense as the booking. Instead, we're getting another four-way after they just did one. And if that's the booking, then why not have Athena take the fall? On that note, why the hell are Baker and Athena even getting title shots when Athena just got her ass kicked by Jade Cargill for a lesser title, and Baker just lost a fatal four-way women's championship match. AEW has not released new rankings in weeks, by the way. But at last glance, Anna Jay and Nyla Rose were in the top five. How about using them? You cannot tell me that Storm versus Jay or Rose is the next pay-per-view plan. So why not start an angle and give one of them the match that they deserve based on the rankings on this show? As you can tell, really with the exception of NXT this week, I have been extremely frustrated at women's booking across WWE and AEW. And even with NXT, one of those matches was really short and I didn't like it. But this just added on top of that frustration. I could not believe this was laid out and booked the way it was. Again, a repetitive fatal four-way match, having your new champion take the fall, not letting the person who beat her fight her one-on-one if you're going to do that. Just endlessly frustrating from top to bottom. I hate this. I hate this crap. Stop. Stop with the crap. On Dynamite, there was a highlight video of Darby flipping a tricycle at some Nitro Circus show. Matt Hardy in a tape promo gave him what seemed like sarcastic applause, saying he's also extreme and they've been partners and adversaries, blah, blah, blah. But he wants a match against him on Rampage for some reason. It really seemed like a flimsy explanation for why Matt suddenly wants to fight Darby, but it's a good way for Darby to get a win back after seemingly losing everything that he's been doing on his own recently. On Rampage, we had a Ring of Honor championship match. Claudio Castagnoli against Dax Harwood. Dax countered into a pile driver. Claudio came back with a superplex. Claudio countered an avalanche back body drop into a crossbody, but Dax rolled through for a near fall. Claudio did a swing and a sharpshooter. Dax countered into the sharpshooter. Claudio then escaped, hit hammer elbows, and put the sharpshooter back on Dax, who submitted as he was nearly knocked out cold. Fine match, but to be candid, I found it boring as sin. It doesn't take away from the quality of the wrestling, but it does take away from the grade. 3.5 stars and a B. On Rampage, Miro cut his standard taped promo saying the devil was taken out before he could do so, referring to Malachi Black, either getting his release or a leave of absence. He yelled about the championships being around the waist of lesser men and not even being part of the tournament. Well, yeah, no shit. He should have been part of the tournament. But if they're going to put him in that tournament or have him go against Wardlow, if they aren't going to, I should say, maybe come up with a feud for this guy and not endless taped promos of nothingness that are repetitive in the same thing. We barely get this guy wrestling on television. Let him come on TV and beat the shit out of some people. Start a storyline or feud, do something. On Dynamite, Jungle Boy fought Jay Lethal. AEW aired a video explaining the match booking. The explanation was basically Jungle Boy wanted a match, so Jay Lethal took it. So there were three times on this show where AEW used video packages to explain storylines. On two of the three, they didn't explain shit. They just were like, this is happening. One of them, the Athena thing, They explained it, I appreciated it. But 
it's not just using video packages. It's putting things in the video packages that tell you why matches are happening and why changes have been made and things like that. Please do better. Uh, Sanjay Dutt in the video thing got angry, calling Jungle Boy a stupid boy and saying Lethal was a man. He is, I mean, I don't get him. I don't know why he's necessary. I know he's supposed to be annoying. It's just really bad. Jungle Boy avoided a lethal injection, hit a brain buster. Lethal hit an avalanche Russian leg sweep. Jungle Boy got lethal in the snare trap twice, but Dutt distracted for a break. Then Jungle Boy put it in a third time for the win. Just some damn good wrestling here. Right winner, no question about it. No other takeaways, really. On Rampage, Powerhouse Hobbs said he believes if you want something done, you gotta get it done yourself. But then he explained that he let the factory try and fail to take out Ricky Starks before squashing him on his own. It was a well-executed promo, but the content is contradictory. If you take care of things yourself, why did you even let the factory get a chance? I still don't understand the factory involvement in the feud or the storyline. It doesn't make a shred of sense. On Dynamite, Hobbs squashed a jobber in under a minute with a spine buster. He somehow busted his mouth open from that before saying he has closed the book on Starks and he was ready to open a new chapter. Just as he said that, Starks was wearing all black. He calmly walked through the crowd before running into the ring and hitting Hobbs with a mic. It's not surprising that this is continuing given the all-out booking, but Stark's strength is his mic work. And I'd prefer to have already heard from him on the subject. It could have been last week with him injured. It could have been this week as he was walking to the ring. I want to hear Ricky Stark's talk. That's what he does best. On Rampage, Samoa Joe apologized for being away and he said he owed the fans more violence. He basically issued an open challenge. Mark Sterling came out saying his guys have never stopped working and issued a challenge for Josh Woods. Joe accepted, but Sterling said it would be next week. This was fine, but it's hardly exciting. Again, jamming in all of the ROH titles, basically making Ring of um, Rampage a Ring of Honor show with Claudio always defending on it. Now, Joe, like, what are we doing here? You have such a huge roster and so many AEW storylines that need TV time. How about you make Ring of Honor into a YouTube show for one hour a week or 45 minutes a week, allow the storylines to happen on that, And then if and when you get a TV deal or a streaming deal or something, then you transition it onto that. Stop taking up rampage time with Ring of Honor bullshit, especially if it involves Sanjay Dutt, Jay Lethal, and Satnam Singh. I like Lethal, but get them off my TV, please. On Dynamite, there was a training montage with Hook and Action Bronson. I actually thought it was kind of badass. Good way to promote their match for Rampage. And then on Rampage, Jade Cargill wondered how anyone was still surprised that she kicked Athena's ass? It's a good question because it was predictable as hell. This time, despite Rampage airing at 10 p.m., by the way, her cut the shit quote got bleeped like USA Network bleeps the shit in holy shit crowd chants. I mean, her catchphrases are ridiculous, but bleeping them makes them even worse than they already are. So that leaves us with AEW Dynamite and I guess technically Rampage Grand Slam. So there are four matches announced for Dynamite. I don't know what's announced for Grand Slam, other than Hook and Action Bronson against uh, Daddy Magic and what, I don't even know what his name is. Clear Hand? Cool Hand, Cool Hand. Uh, So they're fighting in the tag team match. I mean, I assume Hook and Bronson will win that, but I don't know any of the other matches for Rampage. I didn't look at any spoilers uh, from the Rampage taping. So we're just gonna focus on the Grand Slam matches for AEW Dynamite next week. Obviously the main event, John Moxley against Brian Danielson, for the vacant AEW championship. This really could go either way, as I outlined earlier. I would book Brian to win. He did just do an extended interview with Sports Illustrated that may have been to pre-promote him as champion. At the same time, Mox was already in her interim role, and it would be really easy to just go back there. On the other hand, Mox delayed a planned vacation to save AEW in this spot. How long are they delaying that vacation? I think Brian has a better chance than most people think, and again, I would book him to win. He's the biggest name in AEW who has not yet been champion, and it's the most fresh booking that AEW could do. Plus, if MJF is gonna quickly win the title, then perhaps Mox can win, take a month off, and drop it at the next pay-per-view. The other consideration is that Brian is now selling a foot angle just like CM Punk did. Theoretically, AEW could run an identical match booking to Mox's squash of Punk on Dynamite, but given how poorly that was received, and the fact that it would bring Punk back into the consciousness and the online conversation, I can't imagine that happening. It's just not out of the realm of possibility. The one additional thing hanging over this match is MJF and the casino chip. Some fans believe this can be treated like a money in the bank briefcase, but in kayfabe, 
There is nothing to suggest that's the case. That has not been established. Beyond that fact, it would be pretty much a ripoff, like a complete ripoff of Money in the Bank if that's the way they go about this. And it would certainly be a convenient change given the circumstances. But if it does work that way, perhaps Brian does beat Mox, but his foot is so injured that MJF is ready to cash in. He brutalizes it and he wins the title in New York at Grand Slam. So a lot of things to consider when you're thinking about the match booking for this. Uh, we have Swerve and Our Glory against Acclaimed for the AEW Tag Team Championships. No pun intended, but I do wonder if this rematch is a swerve. I think the Acclaimed are going to win, but I assumed internal strife would be what led to the champions dropping the titles and not just a team like this going after them. But AEW is going to want a huge pop for this show and the Acclaimed winning in New York with a very populated Arthur Ashe Stadium will get a massive pop. Uh, Pac is going to fight Orange Cassidy for the All-Atlantic title. There's just no way Pac can lose this title after what happened on Dynamite. And it makes no sense to strap up Orange with this particular championship. And then Storm, Deeb, Athena, and Britt in the four-way. I presume Storm's going to retain by pinning Deeb. Perhaps Baker, if Hater costs her the match somehow with interference and knocks her out, she gets rolled into the ring, then Storm pins her. I could see that. It would be nice if this was somehow different, an elimination match, something to make it stand out from the all-out match. But alas, here we are. If Storm loses the title, particularly if Britt wins it, there is officially no saving the AEW women's division. So that is our full breakdown of AEW. Of course, we already gave you our full breakdown of NXT this week. I appreciate all of you listening to this show, and I appreciate all of you listening to all of our shows here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Please do not miss Tuesday's WWE episode. They are just kind of kicking off their road for Extreme Rules, but Vintage Chris Vanini and I not only covered everything that happened on SmackDown and Raw, we also discussed a number of key topics circulating in the world of WWE that we have been remiss to discuss over the prior weeks. With all of that said, let's get out of this show. Let me remind you quickly that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is so head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Also leave a written review to tell everyone why you love the show and why they should listen. And please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You can send us questions via DM and tweet. You can find out every time episodes drop. And you can hear the late, I said here, you can read uh, the latest news uh, from WWE, AEW, New Japan, NXT, whatever, as it happens. And of course, we give you our thoughts on all the major wrestling programs live as they go down on television. Thank you all once again for listening to the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. This is the Silver King signing off and leaving you with three final words. Bye for now.